Now, the WBBM Noon Business Hour. 12.03, Tuesday afternoon, April 25th. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Rob Hart. Employee surveillance is infiltrating more workplaces, raising issues of trust and privacy. We'll explore that in our next segment. But right now, numbers from the housing market are out, along with a reading of consumer confidence. We're joined by Bob Bruska, chief economist, fact and opinion economics based in New York. Bob, thank you for joining us today. New home sales rising for the fourth month in a row, Bob. It would appear that uh, home buyers are just driving through those higher mortgage rates. Uh, Yeah, there appears to be a recovery in the new home sales market. Uh, It's interesting. You're right. It's been there for a number of months now. But, you know, sales are still, you know, below previous levels. we're looking at uh, sort of flat performance there. And of course, home prices uh, for new homes are uh, are still a lot weaker than they were. We had a jump this month, but um, home prices are a lot weaker. And that's also confirmed by the, uh, by the Case Shiller report today. And this is also uh, serving to uh, boost home prices, breaking that seven-month streak of declines. I mean, what do we make of the housing market these days? I mean, clearly it is slowing down, if not in a recession already. But where is the housing market today compared to where it was uh, pre-pandemic? Well, you know, it's facing a new reality. Uh, you know, interest rates are a lot higher than they were, you know. I mean, so people have mortgages at like two and a half percent. And when you're paying that kind of money for a mortgage, uh, you can pay a lot for the property. You know, my, my first house, when I moved here to New York, I had a 13 percent mortgage on it. Yeah. I, I mean, I can't understand that. Yeah, that was the same case. A lot less money for the house. That was the same case with uh, my parents' house when they moved there uh, in the early 1980s. I mean, that was the reality for an entire generation of home buyers were uh, double digit interest rates for everything. That's right. I mean, so things change, right? I mean, we have this evolution. And so now we've got more inflation and home prices are coming to terms with the higher interest rate environment. And we'll have to see where this settles down. It depends really on how quickly the Fed is able to control inflation, where mortgage rates will settle, what housing prices will do. But the big surprise, you know, in the wake of the, of the pandemic and things settling down is how strong home demand has been. There has been a real increase in demand for homes. It's like when you had the pandemic forced people to stay home, people said, Oh, wow. I guess my home is important. Maybe I should put more money into it or maybe I shouldn't rent anymore. And this has caused people to value their homes differently. I I think think that was the catalyst for it. And then let's look at consumer confidence, which did uh, worsen in the month of April, as it seems like people are becoming pessimistic about jobs. Uh, What are we to make about uh, consumer attitudes about the economy? Well, they're kind of mixed. They've been a lot weaker in the University of Michigan report than they've been in this conference board report. In the conference board report today, you do have some uh, some pickup, for example, in uh, in income expectations, which is uh, a good development. That that's been a very weak part of this report for quite some time, and it's still below where it was in the pre-pandemic area. But um, uh, you know, business conditions and, and expectations and employment conditions are both uh, a lot lower. So, you know, the the current economy is seen as being you know okay, pretty good on, in this report, but the expectations are the part that's taking a hit. People are worried about the future. Bob Bruska, Chief Economist, Fact and Opinion Economics, based in New York. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up, your employer could be watching you more closely than you think. Investing 60 minutes each weekday for planning for the future. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. The shift to at-home and hybrid work has caused many employers to seek out more sophisticated ways to monitor their workers 
that's raising some ethical and other questions. Let's discuss it with Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions and member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force based in Chicago. Jerry, thank you for joining us today. This seems to fly in the face of the corporate recruiting ethos, the prevailing belief now that uh, working from home arrangements need to be part of the competitive recruiting package. That option needs to be available to you and that you can do all sorts of cool things to relax and and uh, not have to worry about work all the time as long as the work is done. But it seems like the other side of that coin is they will be watching. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, part of the concern with at-home working these days is productivity. And depending on the, the trade rag that you read, productivity is up or productivity is down, depending on the industry. And, and uh, employers just aren't looking to these uh, organizations to give them the data they want to know. And, and so there are multiple ways that they can uh, track you and find out what you're doing and how you're doing it. And, and much of it does not even have to be installed on your individual computers or your phones. You know, if you're accessing their servers for work, they can see exactly what you're doing. If you're sending emails from their email solutions, they know what your email content is. They know what attachments you're getting. They know what websites you're going to. Uh, absolutely everything. And so they're monitoring this to see how much of it is actual productive work and how much of it is, you know, personal time. Long time ago, I did inside sales for a website, and they did track the number of outbound phone calls you made on a daily basis. And the software also made sure you were calling inside your sales territory and not just uh, calling friends and family to uh, goose your numbers. But that's inside an office building that the company controls uh, via their lease agreement. If they're monitoring you at home, does that raise some constitutional questions? Uh, well, there's there's ways for them to do that even, again, without installing applications on your system. Uh, mobile device management applications give the, the employer the ability to look at your texts and the number of phone calls and the length of your phone calls. Uh, there are tracking solutions, too, like for ticketing systems. So th- those are all uh, things that the employer is required by law to let you know they're doing. Um, it's not simply a matter of saying, hey, we're going to monitor your your productivity. They need to tell you how they're going to use that, that information, what they're going to do to gather that information. And, and if they don't, they can be held liable for that. That is, uh, uh, you know, against the law. Now, if you're the employee, you can say, look, uh, you're monitoring my productivity uh, based on whatever the surveillance software is telling you to to find. But... The metrics upon which I am being judged, whether it's sales or some other thing, uh, don't necessarily line up with what the surveillance software is doing. That's correct. You could be very productive and, and not have to spend much time. Or on the other side of it, you could be very, you know, spending a lot of time and not be very, uh, and not have great results. That's just a, a, the deal with the sales or, or any type of uh, services. So it doesn't always match up. Uh, you're, you're absolutely correct. And then how has uh, these uh, employee productivity tools, surveillance software, if you want to call it that, how has that changed and evolved over the last three years when working from home became the reality for a lot more people? 
you know, there there were applications uh, at you, like you mentioned, in the office that could tell if you're sitting at your desk, if you're in the office, what time you came in, what time you left. And these uh, applications have become much more sophisticated now to know exactly when you're logging in, if you're going into uh, Zoom calls or or meetings, you know, the the telecommunication meetings. They know if you just have it on in the background or if you're actually there. You, you don't have to have your, your camera on. They can still know if you just have it running in the background and not doing things. So these applications have become much more sophisticated and really more uh, invasive into our lives. Jerry Irvine, CIO of Prescient Solutions and member of the U.S. Secret Service Electronic Crimes Task Force based in Chicago. Thank you for joining us today. Coming up next, the latest efforts to improve the accuracy of AI chatbots. Discussing the news affecting your money. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Software makers are working to prevent artificial intelligence devices and sites from spouting incorrect information. Let's get the latest from Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group, professor of advanced media in residence at the Newhouse School of Public Communication at Syracuse University. Shelley, thank you for joining us today. And one of the uh, pitfalls of ChatGPT and other uh, similar pieces of technology, and you see it a lot on social media is people asking chat gpt or something like it a question and then the response is an authentically formatted piece of gibberish and uh, it seems like uh, the software developers are trying to prevent that from happening well a couple things that are sort of conflated here there's this idea of hallucinations which is what the industry calls it when a large language model makes up part of an answer. And it happens in the most innocuous ways. It doesn't need to be very obvious. Uh, I asked ChatGPT to help me write a blog post a few weeks ago, and uh, it cited the Digital Marketing Association of America and a a report that they wrote. And I I, I Googled the report, no such report. I Googled the association, which didn't ring a bell. And since I'm in that business, I was like, wait, why not? I never heard of it. And then I said, well, where'd you get this from? Cite your sources. And it said, well, I don't have a source. I said, well, where'd you get it? And it said, oh, well, I thought you just wanted me to give you examples of citations. So I made it up. I mean, that's that literally, you had to ask it four times before it gave up that <laughs> it had made up the association and the title of the report. So that's called a hallucination. It just did what it wanted to do. And it was trying to fulfill the goals you asked it to, to, to fulfill. Now, NVIDIA has just come out with a thing called Nemo and guardrails. And the goal there with NVIDIA, aside from that they're trying to really stay present in in the AI game, is that they want to be able to empower you to limit the information that a large language model will draw from so that you might be able to use it for customer service. And the, the idea there is that if someone is talking to your chat, customer service chatbot and they ask about your competition, you don't want the large language model making stuff up about your competition and going off and talking about it, right? So they're trying to work on, on practical ways to, to limit the misinformation that you know, is possible with a large language model. But there's a much bigger issue, Rob. And we need to talk about it for one second. It's called the alignment problem. And if you haven't heard about it, it is a very old problem with all people who work in machine learning and artificial intelligence. You are an engineer and you have a goal. And the goal is to make a system that does blank. And you fill in the blank. That's the stated goal of your system. And now the question is, is the code that you wrote going to generate a model that is aligned with that goal? 
So is it ever possible to align a machine set of goals with a human set of goals? No one knows if that's possible. And that's what no one's really talking about. You should research it if you're listening. The alignment problem, all the hallucination issues and all of the spurious misinformation that may be coming out of large language models may be correctable, but maybe not as easily as people think. So it's, it's good to learn about, you know, some of the limitations. And I think the way everyone should think about large language models like ChatGPT and AutoGPT and all the tools that are out there right now goes like this. Imagine a decision matrix, high stakes and low stakes, which are obvious, high fluency and high accuracy. If something is, needs low accuracy and, but high fluency like, uh, and is low stakes, like a birthday poem for your granddaughter, that's a great – that you could then, you know, edit and there's no harm, no foul if it's not great, but, you know, you can make it great, then that's perfect for a large language model. But if something requires high accuracy and it's high stakes, like making a business decision, large language models might not be the right tool right now. So I think we have to be very careful about what we think these tools can do and how we use them and uh, be very careful. But, you know, the more you bring to a large language model, the more subject matter expertise you have, the more likely you are to get something out of it. But please don't just put stuff in and think it's going to be right. It probably won't be. Shelley Palmer, CEO of the Palmer Group at Syracuse University. Thank you for joining us today. Still ahead in Travel Tuesday, an update on the slow return of business travel. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. This is Chicago's News Traffic and Weather Station, News Radio 105.9. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. Good afternoon, I'm Rob Hart. These are the top stories on News Radio WBBM. An explosion at a petroleum plant in the southwest suburbs leaves a worker dead. President Biden announces he's making another White House run. In Travel Tuesday, it's been a measured return for business travel. We'll get an update on where things stand today. And you may be pondering a request to raise your credit limit. We'll look at the pros and cons. WBBM business, the markets are lower. The Dow is down 298 points. The NASDAQ is down 176, and the S&P 500 is down 52. We have 43 degrees right now at O'Hare under cloudy skies, going up to 47 today. Some sunshine this afternoon, but still a chilly afternoon. It's 1231, topping our news at the half hour. An explosion this morning at an industrial facility in Lamont has left one person dead and another injured. The blast and fire happened around 10 a.m. at Seneca Petroleum on New Avenue. It's believed the accident occurred at an asphalt tank. The explosion also knocked down power lines. The identities of the victims have not been released. President Biden has formally announced he's seeking another term in office. Four years ago to the day he announced his successful bid. We are in the battle for the soul of this nation. This morning. And we still are. 
Healing that soul has been an elusive goal. In a three-minute video, the president asks for another four years to finish the job, betting on two years of progress and 50 years of Washington experience, outweighing concerns over an even bigger number, 86. That's how old he'd be at the end of a second term. And while even many Democrats don't want him to run again, aides insist the party will rally around him, particularly in what could be a historic sequel, a rematch with Donald Trump. Sagar Magani, Washington. It's 1232. Markets are lower today. We're joined by Gary Kultbaum, President, Kultbaum Capital Management based in Orlando. Gary, thank you for joining us today once again. And after a couple of weeks now of the markets uh, merely treading water, a lot of lateral movement, uh, a sell-off is indeed underway. Uh, what led to this change of heart in the last two hours? Well, first off, for the last few weeks, the big indices have been holding up, but the small are not so good. And every day, new yearly lows more than new yearly highs, advanced declines, not good. So that kind of presaged it. But uh, let me give you the best uh, idea of what is, is happening right now is the market that has a voice is yelling and screaming uh, economic trouble ahead. We say that because uh, everything economically sensitive is now starting to get hit. The transports are down 525 today. Retail's getting hit. Semiconductors, my most important group, big time rolling over. And this is happening while the 10-year yield is down to 3.39 today uh, and the inverted yield curve, which is the most I've seen in ages, really screaming some trouble ahead. And I think that's what you got with the market. And then you got to add this First Republic Bank. It's been very quiet on the banking front recently. The stock's down 40% today on big volume, on a big loss of deposit. So the worry is, are there other shoes to drop regardless of what the government had said backstopping things? Now, when it comes to just the anxiety that seems to be gripping the markets today, especially, um, this flies in the face of the major earnings reports, which have been uh, have largely met expectations and have also been accompanied by a number of very big firms uh, revising their expectations upward for the rest of this year. Yeah, well, it's, it's been a few, and there's some, been some pretty decent numbers, but uh, valuations are on the high end still. Uh, we never got rid of the low valuations. Typically, bear markets, you will take price earnings multiple of the market down to low single digits. We're at the high sing, uh, excuse me, low uh, uh, teens. We're in the high teens still, and I think that that is part of the equation here. Plus, there's plenty more earnings to go. And while the earnings were better than estimates, they're not gangbusters. In order to really go, you need to grow. You need to see some real big earnings. Uh, and, and they're okay. Even McDonald's revenue was down 1% year over year. You want to see revenue up 8 9 10% year over year to have su some sustainability. So a lot of things are all happening at once here. And the market's starting to scream a little bit. Alphabet and Microsoft reporting after the bell today. Let's talk very quickly, though, about uh, the technical composition of the market, which uh, it sounds like uh, isn't reflecting reality right now. Well, um, I'm not sure what you mean by technical composition. Um, you know, reality is when all is said and done, the market will be based on uh, an intangible called confidence and what, it's, what it believes to be to come the shape of things to come. 
And the bottom line is if the economy starts to head south, uh, the big money crowd, the big asset managers have to start rethinking uh, what, what they what they believe as far as where things should be valued. That means profits come down. That means price comes down. And I think you're seeing it in droves. And let me just add one thing. The strongest area of the market by far right now are your food, beverage, drugs, medical, household products. These are your recession-resistant areas that typically hold up best when the market uh, uh, starts, uh, you know, cre- uh, seeing uh, uh, trouble with the economy. And I think, again, it's yelling right now, and I, and I adhere to it. And you answered my question. Gary Kalpom, President of Kalpom Capital Management, based in Orlando. Thank you for joining us today. Find him online at GaryK.com. Coming up next in Travel Tuesday, gauging the return of business-related trips. ...to make cash and save cash. The WBBM Noon Business Hour continues. It's Travel Tuesday, and it's been a slow recovery from the pandemic for business travel. Let's get the very latest from Joe Brancatelli, editor in public publisher of joesentme.com based in New York. Joe, thank you for joining us today in 2019 and up until uh, early March of 2020. Monday and Friday at O'Hare, the air was filled with the sounds of rolling suitcases pulled by people in khaki pants. The uh, road warriors uh, going off to battle or returning from it uh, at the airport. And the rise of remote work, Joe, and, and Zoom calls really forced a lot of organizations, it sounds like, to reevaluate their travel budgets and whether you had to actually fly somewhere to conduct that meeting. Absolutely. We've not seen leisure travel has boomed since the end of the pandemic, so much so that the airlines cannot keep up. Business travel, probably 75 to 85 percent back on the best estimates. And we really don't know how much of the rest of it will recover. Because as you say, there are still people working from home. Zoom is the next thing that came up on. There's always something electronic and technical that changes how business travel is. So this is a, not only a challenge for corporations to try and figure out what their T&E budget should be. It's a challenge for the airlines that have traditionally gotten the vast majority of their profit from business travel. Yeah, how much, uh, you know, we always talk about how uh, the people up front subsidize the fares and back, uh, talking about first class and business class, but, you know, how much did business travel subsidize the leisure market? Well, that's always up for question, Rob, because we don't ask people as they get on the plane why they're on the plane. So we're always guessing. I've seen numbers that say 15% of, of travel, which is business travel, contributed to 80% of the profit. However, all business class airlines have never done well either. In fact, there's only one at the moment flying between New York and Paris and New York and Milan. Uh, Domestic all business class has never worked. So you do need the balance. The trick, especially for the airlines, will be to figure out whether they can profit on leisure travel as business travel stays down and stays away. And how does this impact uh, airline uh, perk and upgrade programs? Because uh, you know, how many pay people who fly first class or business class actually paid the fare versus uh, upgrading because they rolled up so many miles during their business trips? Well, when I first started covering business travel a long, long time ago, uh, near the start of deregulation in the early 80s, um, it was as little as 2% paying to upgrade now, because of things like frequent flyer programs and co-pays and things like that, 
it might be 10, 20, 30%. But again, we're talking apples and oranges. The trick is that most miles now come from credit card spend, not actual flying. In fact, an airline like American has totally remade their program that basically says $1 spent is the equivalent of one mile flown. So, you know, the airlines have been able to subsidize that a little bit and cushion themselves, but we still don't know exactly how airlines are going to find profit from leisure travelers who've traditionally been less profitable and less predictable as customers. And uh, one sector of business travel that is way up is uh, team travel. So you you might, uh, as an office, determine that maybe this uh, some things are better conducted as a Zoom meeting, but the uh, appeal of going to a convention center and going to a steakhouse and the company's dime is eternal. Oh, absolutely. They're, a good case can be made, and I'm preparing to make it based on the facts I can gather, is that while there's less domestic travel, generally for business travelers, and less people in the office, about the only time you can see your compatriots is, hey, let's all go to McCormick Place for the convention, and we'll all meet there. And then, as you say, you know, hit the steakhouse or, or a nice pizza place um, and do the kind of bonding that you used to do every day in the office that you no longer do because everybody works or, or a lot of people work remotely. So convention travel might actually tick up even while business travel in general is down. Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher of JoeSentMe.com, based in New York. Thank you for joining us today and join us at this time tomorrow for Personal Finance Wednesday and still to come, deciding if the time is right to request a higher credit limit. This is the WBBM Noon Business Hour. There can be strong financial reasons to request a credit limit hike. Let's find out about any potential pitfalls from Matt Schultz, chief credit analyst with LendingTree in Austin, Texas. Matt, thank you for joining us today. What are the circumstances uh, that would require you to request a, an increase in your credit limit uh, outside of the kind of emergency situations that would, would arise? Sure. Well, one of the things, one of the reasons why you might is to help your credit score. And the truth is that one of the big factors in credit scoring is what's known as your credit utilization. So how much debt you have compared to how much available credit you have. And if you increase your available credit that you have by boosting your credit limit, that utilization number can decrease and that can help your credit score. So that's a, that's a significant thing. And then uh, when it comes to uh asking for a credit limit increase, is that uh, almost always granted? Or are there some people where they say, "Uh, no, we're not going to do that. That's uh, too much of a risk for us. It's granted really, really often. Uh, At LendingTree, we just did a survey about people at making certain requests of their card issuers. And we found that about 86% of people who asked for a higher credit limit in the past year have gotten one. And those numbers have been pretty similar for the last few years. So that just shows that it's not just people with perfect credit scores and long track records that are getting their way. And what is the impact on your credit score when they, uh, the, the, the lending institution or the credit card uh, uh, does an inquiry? I mean, there's a big difference if it's a soft pull versus a hard pull. Yeah, exactly. And, and not all issuers will do a hard pull when you ask for a credit limit increase, but some might. 
generally what happens is that there will be a small temporary ding to your credit because of that hard inquiry. But the truth is that the benefit that you get from improving your credit utilization can be significant enough that it outweighs that small temporary ding. So it's totally worth doing. Can you request as the cardholder uh, a, a credit limit increase of a certain amount, or is there a predetermined number of steps for increasing your credit limit? And if that uh, is your call, uh, what's the amount that makes sense? Well, you, you certainly can put a number out there. Um, you, if you, you know, if you have a thousand dollar credit limit, you may not want to ask to boost that up to ten thousand. That may be a little bit too much to ask. But uh, but if you have a thousand and you want to bump it up to two thousand, that seems reasonable. Um, or you could also just tell the issuer if you've had a major change, like you've gotten a raise or you have a higher income level, that sort of thing, and then they may offer to increase that credit limit uh, themselves. Matt Schultz, Chief Credit Analyst with LendingTree in Austin, Texas. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. If you missed any part of today's noon business hour, we'll have the replay podcast available shortly at WBBMNewsRadio.com and the Odyssey app.